So Genesis 46 tonight, Genesis chapter 46, and a study from which we really draw three things, the promise of God, the blessings of God, and the goodness of God. The promises of God are yes and amen. Amen? God doesn't make any promises that he does not keep. And that becomes very, very apparent in the life of Jacob, who now is beginning to be once again called Israel. He's going from schemer and heel catcher to where the Lord really intended him all along to be governed by God, to be the father of this nation, these 12 sons, that from whom one day God will make good on that promise made to Abraham that through you, Abraham, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. And of course, that's a reference to the coming Messiah, to the King of Kings, to the Lord of Lords. And so tonight we see that God keeps his promises. And you would think if there was ever a group of people, a wholesale group, with which God might want to say, you know, I know I made a promise, but you guys have just messed up so much that, that I'm going to kind of pull back on that a little bit. I, I know I said it, but for you, the way you've acted, I just really don't think I can keep that promise through you. God simply is faithful 100% of the time because Jacob is one of those guys. The 12 sons are those types of people. And here's the really good news. We're exactly like Jacob. We're exactly like the 12 sons. We're a beautiful picture of God's kept promises even when we don't keep ours. Because God is faithful and he cannot deny himself. He is even faithful when we are faithless. And so tonight we'll take all of chapter 46 and we'll begin in verse 1, but before we do, let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, that you keep your promises. Thank you, Father God, that you're a blessing God, that you bless those, especially those who bless you, but you even bless those who do not bless you. But you're a blessing God. And Lord, we thank you that you are a good God, and that your mercy is new every morning. That God, no matter where we go, no matter where we might try and hide, there you are. And you keep your promises, you bless us, and you are good. So Lord, speak to us through your word. Help us to see these things and apply them to our lives, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1, and so Israel... So he's, he's moved. He's gone back from being called Jacob to Israel. So Israel took his journey with all that he had, and he came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And then God spoke to Israel in the visions in the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. Now, before you get too carried away, God made a lot of promises to Jacob. He made many of those promises that are going to be fulfilled really in Israel, governed by God. 
he made those when Jacob was still being Jacob. Amen? And the same is true for us. God makes promises to us. His word is true even when we don't believe it. His promises are true even when we don't receive them. What God says will always stand. And so this is a picture of of the Lord being a promise-keeping God. But he's still reminding Jacob, you used to be Jacob. Jacob, Jacob, and he said, here I am. And so he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make of you a great nation there. And I will go down to you, with you to Egypt, and I will surely bring you up again. And Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. And so God's reminding this aged man who's now 130 years old that he keeps his promises. He said, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to work in your life in a way that when you really see me at work, you're going to remember the things that I promised, not just to your grandfather, not just to your grandfather's father, but to the entirety of your lineage, to your whole heritage, to the people that you will actually birth from your own, from your own loins. As Jacob learns these lessons about God over his, life, over his lifetime, he now begins to live those things out. And I want to remind you that when you become a Christian, you do not instantaneously reach a place of maximum sanctification. You don't instantaneously become sinless. You start in the process of sinning less and experiencing the blessings of God more, but you're not instantaneously sinless. And Jacob learned that lesson because it was through those failures that every single time he saw God faithful. When Jacob was faithless, God remained faithful. And this is such an important lesson for us because what happens is sometimes we equate our own faithlessness to God being faithless towards us because we know we deserve it. We, we know ultimately that because of who we are, we would not bless us. Does that make sense? In other words, you look at your own life and you know your own character, you know your own nature, you know how you have responded to the goodness of God and it hasn't always been good in return. And so you start to equate your own faithlessness to God. And you say, well, God's not going to keep that promise, not to me anyway. God always keeps his promises. It is not dependent upon you. Now, his blessings are a different matter, and we'll get to those secondarily. God blesses those who bless him. So before you get too far carried away, do not equate faithlessness to blessedness. If you want to be blessed, then you need to be faithful to God. God may bless you because he's providentially good, but if you want the very best of what God has to offer you, then you need to be 
keeping the, the things that God has asked you to do. God blesses those who bless him. But in this case, he's going to keep his promises. And while a lot of this is simply due to God's goodness, because there's a lot of reasons for God to say, well, you know, maybe not. God finally gets to that place where he's worked in in Jacob's life, now Israel, and, and he says, look, you finally got it. Jacob is going to go through a, a period of blessing. Israel is going to go through a period of blessing of almost 17 years before Israel finally goes home, before he dies. But Jacob's sunset years are, are going to be really kind of autumn years. They're, they're going to be good years. They're going to be warm years in the sun. They're going to be years where you can see that God is gracious and God is good. And I don't know about you, but I am so thankful for God's kindness in my own life. His goodness to me, in, in spite of the times in my life where I didn't do what he asked me to do. In spite of the fact that at times I didn't honor the Lord with everything he asked me to honor him with. But God was still faithful. God was still good to me. And I look at my latter years and I'm like, Lord, you are so good. I don't deserve a bit of this. I just don't. And I think it's important that we maintain that type of an attitude towards the Lord, that humble admission that all of the goodness that God pours out on us, we will never deserve. And I think when you get to that place where you can honestly recognize that it's just simply the goodness of God that's piled onto the promises of God that have come from the blessings of God, you just recognize, man, my whole life is nothing but a bunch of Jesus. He's just been good to me. And here's the the cool thing about this particular story. Jacob's been living with his family in Hebron for many years now. And even in his old age, he's finally getting an opportunity to just simply listen to God and to do what he says. I love that God continues to give us opportunities to simply listen and do it. That he's never done with us. Anybody thankful that God's never done with us? Man, I love that God's never done with us. When I think of my own life, sometimes it's like, Lord, I know it took a long time to get here, but I'm so thankful that you, you let me have do-overs, that you continue to, to pull me off the shelf and use me in some new way. Because it's there that we see God just being faithful to his promises. When he says, I know my thoughts towards you are good and they are not evil. They're a future and a hope. They're a promise of blessing to you. When when he spoke those words to Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 29 or in verse 11, that's true for all of us. God's thoughts towards us are actually good. And they're a future. And they're a hope. You see, our future would not be very hope-filled if it was all about God simply giving us retribution for what we've earned. Amen? My end would be very bad if God was just simply going to pay me what I was due. That's really a classical definition, if you will, of God's mercy. He does not give us what we've earned. 
Instead, he's gracious to us in not giving us what we've earned, but rather giving us what we have not earned, his grace. And in that grace moment, he still pulls us off the shelf, even later in life, and says, look, I want to use you. We saw off the missions teams today, uh, Team Columbia, the high school team, is in the air now. Uh, The junior high team, I believe, is arriving at the airport about now. And I'm sitting and looking at the leadership and just seeing how God has raised up people and and taken them from all kinds of different areas and walks of life. And and you're watching people in their sunset years. There's some folks on those trips that are not exactly spring chickens. And yet they're on a new adventure. God's taken them and said, I am still faithful. My promises are still good, and I want to bless you. Would you come along for the journey? That's where we find Jacob and his family now. They're going on a new journey with the Lord. And so we first see this promise that's, that's made here. And as Paul wrote to Timothy, even when we are faithless, he is faithful. Jacob has been living in Hebron. Hebron is south of Jerusalem, but it's not at the southern border of the region of Judea, and it's also not at the southern border of the region of Canaan, which the entirety of the promised land was called Canaan, but it is very near. It's only about 30 more miles to the southernmost city in the inhabited area that was not inhabited by the Egyptians because the Egyptians at that time were in what we today call the Sinai. That's where the wilderness of sin was. That's where the wilderness wanderings happened that Pastor Joel was talking about when we were reading from Exodus 16 this morning. That happened in the region a little further south of Beersheba, the Seven Springs. And so here is Jacob on this journey at 130 years old with his family, he is going to take a step of faith. And he's going to Beersheba. And it's interesting to me, when you look at what happened in that particular city in Beersheba, that southernmost town in in Canaan, it, it was there that Abraham dug that well. Amen? It was there that Abraham erected an altar unto the Lord. It was there that Abraham actually lived after offering Isaac on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. It was there that Isaac lived. It was there that Jacob left for Laban's house to find a wife. It was there that God appeared to Hagar. It was there that God appeared to Isaac. It was there now that he was going to finally appear once again to Jacob. It was a special place. And God had a plan for his life. And sometimes, I think we're, we're hesitant to actually ask God, God, send me to where you want to bless me. This is a place that historically they could look back and say, look, my forefathers were blessed here. But they had left the land of blessing and they had gone to the land of testing. And so God's saying, I want you to come back to the land of blessing. And so God is going to send them to that place. 
And very often God takes us to a place where he can bless us before he's going to send us out again where he knows we're going to get tested. Because there's going to be some further tests in Egypt. And so God brings us into places of blessing very often because he knows that there are some tests that are still yet to come. Can I tell you, I've pretty much figured out that I'm not done getting tested by God yet. I I think I'm going to finish my race. There's probably going to be a test on the last day, I think. I'm going to be doing something and, you know, God's going to say, you know, just one more. We know God's going to test us. But have you asked God to send you someplace where he can bless you? You know, sometimes we just get so hesitant to ask God for big things. It's like, God, would you send me somewhere where you can bless me? Place me where you want me to be. And Jacob is right to worry about going to Egypt, amen? Egypt hasn't exactly been a great place for this family. So, so why is, is you know, Joseph instructing him to come there in the first place? You would think Joseph would have left Egypt and gone to Canaan, amen? Again, this is another picture of the next step. Because the same God that's God in Canaan is also God in Egypt, amen? And so as we like to equate Egypt to the world, the world that we live in, to that region which we look at, at least in an eternal sense, that actually today is largely ruled over by the enemy, by Satan. This world belongs to him in a, in a tangible way, though not in a permanent way. God's given Satan rule and reign. He's able to affect things in this life while God retains his sovereignty. The God of this age is the devil. Amen? And so the God of the Egyptians was not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so in essence, you're you're watching this family. They're going to move a little further south, and then eventually they're going to make the jump down to Egypt. They're actually going to move to a place where they're going to be in the world in that sense. But God is going to go there before they get there. He's going to be there when they arrive. And he's going to be there after they leave. And wherever you go, God is going to be there before you get there, and he's going to be there after you leave. That's why John could speak with such great confidence when he writes his letters to the church. They're in 1 John chapter 4, and you may remember it from our study in verse 4. You are of God, little children. John said, look, you guys are Christians, you're believers, and you've overcome the wicked one. And he goes on to say, for he who is in you is greater than he who's in this world. Amen? And so while there is a reason to think, you know, maybe I, you know, our father Abraham, he got in trouble down there. It wasn't exactly good when the boys went down there and found ultimately Joseph was there and they were released and they came back and it's worked out okay, but it's not a place that would be really high on your list. Hey, let's move to Egypt. And so God comes to him and assures him and he says, Jacob, Jacob, you have been Jacob and I've watched over you while you're Jacob. It kind of reminds me because he said the same thing. He, he, said, he said, Abraham, Abraham, 
We find Samuel gets the same. Samuel? Samuel, I've got this. He says to Martha, 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 you're concerned about many things. Every single time that someone's name is doubled up in Scripture, it's because they are afraid. And the comfort of the Lord is this, look, I'm the God of this situation. Martha, I can handle the fact that your sister Mary wants to sit at my feet. Abraham, I can handle the fact that you're afraid you don't know what's going to happen. And in fact, the last time that this particular usage of, of the language is used, it's actually to the Apostle Paul. But it's before he's Paul. It's Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Because God had a plan to take Saul of Tarsus and make him the great apostle that we know. And so wherever God is going to call you, God is also going to bring you back from that place. If he sends you somewhere, it's incumbent upon him to get you back to where he wants to use you. And so if God calls you, you can trust him. You can go even if it is dangerous. On Thursday, I did have a a couple of parents in the church that are going, you know, I just read this news article and our kids are going to El Salvador. And, you know, I I watched this program. It was on Discovery Channel and it was showing all the gangs and the prisons. And, you know, my, my little children are coming back, right? And I said, well, no, they're, they're going to be taken captive. And... No, I didn't say that. I was actually really nice. And I said, sure, yeah, absolutely they're going to come back. And just so you know, the head Supreme Court justice, the equivalent of our, of our Supreme Court justice that's in charge, Justice Roberts, uh, goes to Calvary Chapel, La Capilla, and in San Salvador in the capital city. So we kind of have a little bit of in with the government down there. But, but I, and I knew that. But it, it, the bottom line is this team's been called there. It's God's responsibility to bring them back. It, it's God's responsibility to get them home. It's our responsibility to respond to the calling of God. It's our responsibility to say yes and Amen. It's our responsibility to answer exactly like the prophet Isaiah said. Remember his call, he says, woe is me, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, in a people of unclean lips. What am I to do is is a paraphrase of it. And then God says, well, who will go for me? And what did Isaiah say? Here am I, send me. What happened to the great prophet Isaiah, where was he sent? He was sent to the whining, complaining, grumbling, completely embattled people of Israel inside the city, besieged city of Jerusalem that was laid siege to by the most powerful nation on earth, Assyria. So Isaiah goes, here am I, send me. I want to be faithful. And God sends him to the most dangerous place on the earth at the time. What happened to Isaiah? 
God used him, and God got him home. And in fact, so great is that story that when you read, when you get into chapter 33, 32 and 33, and you read of this onslaught of the Assyrian army, it, it says, and in one night the angel of the Lord went to the encampment, the encampment of the Assyrians and slayed 185,000 of them. You see, if it takes the angel of the Lord coming to your rescue to slay 185,000 of the enemy, that's on God. Because he called you and you answered the call. The picture is we got to trust God. Because he's faithful to his promises. He's faithful to his people. We can't just sequester ourselves and go, well, what, what, if, what if that happens? And I want to share with you just a, a little bit of a, a concern that I have with the body of Christ. We have an awful lot of panicked Christians in the world that are running around like chicken little. It's like, oh, the sky is falling. President Trump did this. Or, you know, the, you know we're about to go to war there. It's like, ah! <laughs> and they, they send me like, you know, these news flashes. I got, this is no joke. Okay, you remember that we had a drone shot down, right? Within 24 hours, I had more than 10 emails in my inbox. Well, we're going to war now. We're going to have, this is going to get blown up. And there's an aircraft carrier over here. And there's going to, bombs are going to fly in the morning. And blah, blah, you know, it's just on and on and on. And it's like, oh, no. Can I tell you that if God's not God on the day before the drone strike happens, he's not God the day after it happens, and he's not God the day that we decide to do whatever we're going to do. We need to chill a little bit when it comes to these things, folks, and not get so stirred up that like every single thing almost equates to a lot of Christians going, ah! God is God. And he is not subject to the powers of this earth. He is the power that ultimately controls everything on this earth. And we can trust him. We, we don't need to overreact to everything. Throw our hands up in the air. I, it's crazy how many people send me emails. It's like, well, you know, we need to get in this protest and that protest. We need to do this kind of thing. We need to stop shopping here and stop shopping there and quit going there. Can I just tell you that Jesus said in Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. Amen? What did he say after that? He said, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it underneath a basket but on a lampstand and it gives light to the whole house and so let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your father who is in heaven and if we are panicking every single time something happens in the world and we've got to start a protest against every single thing that happens in the world we are telling the world that our God is not in control. 
We're actually saying we don't trust him. So be careful about the overreaction to everything that goes on in the world. It is an opportunity for us to stand strong. It's an opportunity for us to stand for the truth. That is a fact. But we shouldn't be panicking like we're all going to you know, die in some nuclear holocaust every time the Ayatollah of Iran says something. If God is not in control, he's not in control, and we should be really worried. But he is in control, so we do not need to obsess over danger. God is God. And let's leave him there. Israel is now going to set up an altar, what he should have done a long time ago, but he finally gets down to doing that. And when I read this passage this afternoon, it's like I, I wanted to. I want to see, it's like I wonder how many times God has said to me, Jeff, 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 Jeff. Are you going to set up an altar? Are you going to worship me? Or are you going to walk around in fear? Are you going to cave to the pressures of this world? Or are you going to trust me? If I'm going to be an effective witness in his kingdom, even if God plants me right smack dab in the land of Pharaoh, the God who called me and the God who sent me is still faithful. Amen? By all means, familiarize yourself with Egypt. Do the things that are rational and logical. But fear destroys faith. And so don't be afraid. The Lord our God is with us wherever we go. And so if he sends you, he'll bring you home. I love Isaiah 43. Verse 1, it begins, But now thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob. Speaking of Jacob, Israel. He who formed you, O Israel. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. And you are mine. And when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flames scorch you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt for your ransom, and Ethiopia, and Sheba for your place. Since you were precious in my sight, You have been honored. I have loved you, and therefore I will give men for you and people for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your descendants from the east. I'll gather you from the west. I'll say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not keep them back. And I will bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. And I believe that promise was fulfilled when Israel became a nation again. God is faithful. If you ever want to look and see if God's faithful or not, that there is a nation Israel ought to prove it to you. No people group has been more hated than the Jewish people on this earth. That's not saying they're the only people group to have experienced hatred, racism. But no people group has ever been so close to extermination, and yet God said, you are my people. I will bring you back. And that is exactly what he did. 
If you want proof, travel with us to Israel. You go, wow, this is pretty nice here. Not wow, there are Bedouins living in tents. There's a reason Microsoft and Apple have factories in Israel. Because God keeps his promises. You are my people. The truth is, he's Lord of all. Can I tell you that Jesus is not an American? Jesus is not an American. Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? And sometimes we kind of reduce Jesus down to a citizen of our country. And while I'm glad that, in, in, in essence, one could say that we are the most Christian nation on earth, Jesus is not an American. He's the King of heaven. He's the Lord of earth. And so when we say he's Lord of all, he's Lord of every nation. He's Lord of Uzbekistan. Most people can't even find it on a map. If you tell them there's a country called Uzbekistan, where is it? They're going, I don't know. He he is the Lord of people wandering the steppes of Mongolia. He is the Lord of the Inuits. He is the Lord of all, everyone. He's the Lord of every tribe and tongue and nation. And sometimes we treat him like he's kind of condensed down to just the Lord of Christian people. No, he is the Lord, period, of heaven and earth. There's no master above him. He answers to no one. And so in his role as Lord, he knows our names, he knows our needs, and if he calls you to go down to Egypt, he is the Lord of Egypt. He's the Lord of Jacob. He's also the Lord of Israel. So when Jacob's being Jacob, Jesus is still Lord, amen? The only difference is, is when you're walking governed by God, when you're Israel, you experience the blessings of God. You, you see, that's where the tests in our life, the tests of our faith come in. As God allows us to be tested, it's not because he doesn't know what we're going to do. It's because he is allowing us the opportunity to be stretched and grow and come into a new place of faith. The testing of your faith produces what, church? Patience. Patience, when it has its perfect work, leaves you complete and lacking how much? Nothing. So when God sends us to Egypt so that we can be tested in Egypt, it's not because he hates us. It's because he loves us and he knows the test is going to increase our patience and the patience, when it's done, is going to leave us complete. So God is the God of everywhere, all peoples, whether they acknowledge him or not. That's why when Paul writes to the church at Philippi, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess 
that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, whether they are on the earth or under the earth. Amen? Because he's Lord of all. He's not just the Lord of Christians. He is our personal Lord and Savior, but he's still the Lord of everywhere at all times. Don't forget that. Because I hear people say really ignorant things like, well, we really shouldn't go there because after all, those people are damned. I've actually had people say that to me. Like Jesus isn't Lord in Iran. Or, or Jesus isn't Lord in communist China. The Chinese Christians are being persecuted like crazy right now. But Jesus Christ is still Lord. He is still Lord. Lord. Jacob finally learns that lesson. Second thing that we see here is is God's blessing. And it comes in the form of exactly what God said he would do. What was the promise to Abraham? I will make you a multitude. All of the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. Wasn't that the promise made to Abraham? You can read it later, chapter 12. Verse 5, And then Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob, their little ones, their wives, in their carts, which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. Isn't that crazy? Here's a pagan king sending at, at his command all of the things necessary to take care of a people that he formerly was going to bring into slavery. And so they took their livestock, their goods, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan and went to Egypt. And Jacob and all of his descendants with him, his sons and his sons' sons and daughters and his sons' daughters, and that would be daughters-in-law for the most part except for Dinah, and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. And so the whole family is moving from the promised land, Canaan, to the land that ultimately is going to be bondage, which will be Egypt. And now these were the names of the children of Israel. And so here's this long genealogy. Jacob and his sons who went to Egypt. Reuben was Jacob's firstborn. The sons of Reuben were Hanok, Palu, Hezron, and Carmri. And the sons of Simeon were Jemuel, and Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shal. The son of the Canaanite woman, the sons of Levi were Gershon, Kolath, and Merari. The sons of Judah were Ur, Onan, Selah, Perez, and Zerah. Uh, but Ur and Onan had died in the land of Canaan. The sons of Perez uh, were Hezron and Hamul. The sons of Ishakar, uh, Tola, Puva, Job, and Shimron. The sons of Zebulun were Sered, Elon, and Jahil. And these were the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Padam Aram, uh, the sons of, uh, with his daughter Dinah, and all three persons and his sons and his daughters were 33. And so there's 33 people in that group. The sons of Gad were Zaphion and Haggai, Shuhi, uh, Esbron, uh, Eri, Arodai, and Ariel. And the sons of Asher were Jemna. Ashula, Ishula, um, Beriah, and Sariah, the sister. The sons of Beriah were Heber and Machael. And these were the sons of Zilpha, 
uh, whom Laban gave to Leah's daughter, and these she bore to Jacob 16 persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, were Joseph and Benjamin, uh, to whom uh, Asenath, uh, the daughter of Potipharah, the, the priest of On bore to him, and the sons of Benjamin were Bela, Becker, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Mupam, Hupam, and Ard. That sounds like a, like a tire store or something. I went to Mupam, Hupam, and Ard. And these were the sons of Rachel, born to Jacob, 14 persons in all, and the son of Dan was Hushim, and the sons of Naphtali were Jezahil, and Guni, and Jesser, and Shalim. And these were the sons of Bila, whom Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter, and she bore these to Jacob, seven persons in all. And all the persons who went with Jacob to Egypt, who came from his body, besides Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. All the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two persons, and all the persons in the house of Jacob that went to Egypt were 70. Anybody know what the number 70 is? It is a number of completion. And so God says, look, I want to bless you. And how is he going to bless? Because the promise was that through Abraham and through his lineage, he would bless the entirety of the earth and he would use the Jewish people to do it. And so in typical Semitic fashion, the the males are named in this list. The females are not, except for Jacob's daughter, Dinah. And so the daughters listed here must be daughters-in-law, just to remind you of that particular uh, usage of language here as it's translated from Hebrew and into English ultimately uh, and some of the family I don't think even realized what was going on here uh, but the Lord would have an important work for them to do in the years of head years of head ahead they're going to need to survive in order for God to be found faithful and so God again has made this promise and now he's blessed so that the promise can be kept God also is that blessing God. And it, again, it's incumbent upon him to do what is necessary to get us to the place that he needs us to be. And so he keeps his promises, but he also blesses in the midst of us honoring our part of keeping those promises. And very often I, I, when I talk to people, it's like, and I'll ask them, well, what's going on in your life? Well, you know, I've been doing this and been doing that. And you, you get down, well, did, what did God tell you to do? Well, he, you know, I kind of think he meant for me to do this or he told me to do that or somebody shared the scripture with me, but I didn't really feel like that was what I should do. And you find out that the place that they're in is an unblessed place. And the reason they're in that unblessed place and they're not receiving the blessings of the Lord is they've been disobedient to what God asked them to do. We see the blessings of God because finally Jacob has done exactly what God told him to do without delay. Do you remember our study? Do not stop on the way to the promised land. Don't take a little sojourn in the enemy's camp. When God tells you to do something, do it all the way. Go all the way there. And finally, we see Israel doing that. Because he's now acting as though he's governed by God. He's saying, look, I'm not going to stop. He, he, he goes to Beersheba. He grabs his family. And they have been told to go get out of this famine that has still got a ways to go, by the way, in the land of Canaan. And so these immigrants, if you will, are, are going to ultimately, just as Genesis chapter 12 reminds us, 
They're going to bring about the man Christ Jesus, the child who's born, the son who was given, the one that Isaiah prophesied of there in Isaiah 9-6. That one is coming out of this group of people. It's going to bless the whole world. And so when John begins to record some of these events in his gospel, he's looking at the people, and there in chapter 6 he said, and then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, this truly is the prophet who's come into the world. You see, the Jewish people even, they understood that there was going to be a prophet that was going to come out of of the lineage of Jacob, Israel. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Amen? Israel. That's why Pilate said, are you then a king? In John chapter 18. And Jesus answered, you rightly say that I am a king. And for this cause I was born. For this cause I've come into the world. That I should bear witness of the truth. And everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. You see this simple act of obedience. Based on the promises of God. Brings the blessings of God. And ultimately is going to bring forth the goodness of God. Amen. You see when you start doing things God's way. It unleashes this chain of events that we should be expecting. And any deviation from this plan, if you do not trust the promises of God, you will not see the blessings of God. And when you're outside of the blessings of God, it's very tough to see the goodness of God. And so these things go in order this way. God's the one who makes the promises. If we walk in those promises, we're in a place of blessing. And as we walk in in the blessing, then we get to see that God is actually good. But when I walk in disobedience, and I don't trust the promises of God, and I walk outside of the blessings of God, then I have a very tough time seeing that God is good. And so get that when you see this particular passage unfold before you. God is absolutely good. And he he shows this goodness, and he's going to expound on it in the remaining uh, six or so verses of this chapter. And and so we have this list of children, but you have to look at it from the standpoint that God thinks about kids. You see, we live in a world that somehow thinks that children are disposable. That's the world we live in. I wish it were not so, but it is so. That was not the Jewish world. It's actually still not the Jewish world. Psalm 127 says, Behold, the children children are a heritage from the Lord. They're not a financial hardship. Are they going to be financially a hardship? Yes, but they're a heritage from the Lord. Are children, anybody in here that's a parent, do, do children actually cost you something? Yes, they do. But they're absolutely a blessing from the Lord. They're a blessing from the Lord. They actually qualify in exactly what the psalmist said, that they're actually a reward from God. They're like arrows in the hand of a warrior. So are the children of one's youth. You see, the perspective 
of the people that were engaged in this particular march down to Egypt understood things differently than we see in our modern world. Proverbs 17 says there in verse 6, that children, children are, are the crown of an old man. Grandkids are the crown of an old man. Uh, and the glory of the children is their father. But you, that you turn around, I, I can't wait. We're, we're working on being grandparents for the first time. You know, because we were married for 15 years because we didn't think that God was going to give us any children. Actually, we were told we weren't going to have any kids, but we have two sons, and now we're about to become, I can't wait. I'm like, yes. The glory of the children is their father. You, 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 you get to now kind of spoil. You can give them candy and take them to, and send them back to their parents completely amped up on sugar and Dodger dogs and have a nice evening. We've got this all mapped out. <laughs> God keeps his promises. God gives his blessings and he's going to do that when we walk in his ways. Finally, we'll wrap this up. We see God's amazing goodness. These 11 brothers have already been reunited with Joseph, right? And, and so Jacob is now going to meet them after a separation, get this, a separation of 22 years. Finally, Jacob is going to get to meet Joseph, whom he thought was dead. Whom his brothers sold into slavery, lied about it, took the multicolored coat, smeared it with blood, brought it back. He's dead, Dad. Can I tell you, God can resurrect parts of our life that we think are dead. He's that good. He is that good. Verse 28, and then he sat Judah before him, sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out before him the way to Goshen, the, the promise, the, the land that was good. And they came to the land of Goshen there in the Nile Delta, this fertile land where they would be able to take care of their families. And so Joseph made ready his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. And he presented himself to him and he fell on his neck and wept at his neck a good long while. Can you imagine that reunion? You, you see, you can almost look at Jacob and you can go, yeah, he kind of sort of deserved that. But God is so good that even when we kind of sort of deserve not good things, God's still good. Amen? Amen? This is a beautiful picture. And Israel said to Joseph, now let me die since I have seen your face because you are still alive. Man, that's, that is the Lord pulling off a Romans 8.28 moment. And, and we'll see that in even greater detail in chapter 50. And then Joseph said to his brothers, to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and say to him, my brothers and those of my father's house who are in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds. And for their occupation has been to feed livestock. And they brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have 
And so it shall be when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say the servant's occupation has been with livestock from your youth until now and both we and also our fathers so that you may dwell in the land of Goshen for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. God cares about them so much that he even instructs the fine points of their conversation. He says, look, I don't want you to say that you're shepherds. You you need to kind of alter what you're going to say to say that you've been with livestock because shepherds are looked on in an evil way here in this land. Can I tell you that God's the God of the details of your life? And God is good even in the details of your life. And so this reunification of this family finally happens. And this land in the Nile River Delta, if you were to look at it on a map today, it's probably close to 1,000 square miles, actually. It's at least 900, very fertile, excellent for grazing cattle. And so they're going to shift occupations for a time. God's going to move them into a new land and give them a new job. He's going to make them a new family, a new people. He's going to protect them there. And so we find... Joseph finally weeping for joy instead of just in the the sadness of the brokenness of his family. And and you can see how God is just pouring out his amazing goodness. I remember when Jesus came on the scene in Luke 2. He said, now Lord, Simeon speaking. When he looked at the face of Jesus Now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word for my eyes have seen your salvation. That's how good God is. He gives us in that moment that we need it the very things that we need. I know Jacob kind of seems to be a little preoccupied with his home going. Finally, the totality of the dreams of Joseph come true. The family is reunited and the time of blessing was upon them. And that ironic blessing that comes there in Numbers chapter 6, speak to the sons of Israel this way, saying the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. The Lord be gracious unto you. And the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And so they shall put my name on the children of Israel. And I will bless them. God keeps his promises. God is a blessing God, and God is always good. Amen? Would you stand and we'll pray together. Father God, we thank you. Lord, I thank you. Lord, I want to thank you publicly for keeping your promises to me. Lord, you have been so faithful. Lord, even when I have been faithless, and I I want to say, I thank you, Lord, for keeping your promises to me. Lord, I pray for each of us that that we would honor you by thanking you for being a promise-keeping God. That you're never late, you're always on time, and whatever you say, you will do. Uh, Lord, we thank you, I thank you that you're a blessing, God. And in spite of my failures, my weaknesses, my shortcomings, my shortfalls, Lord, my faux pas, the things where 
I, Lord, have not kept everything that you've asked me to do perfectly, you are still a blessing, God. And you have blessed me. You've blessed my family. You have blessed us as a church. You've kept your promises to us as a family. And as a church, you're keeping your promises to this world. And Lord, we thank you for your goodness. You are a good God, and we declare you a good God. You're not a mean God. You're not a terse God. You're not an unloving God. You're not a capricious God. You are a good God. And you love to give good gifts to your children. And so, Father, we thank you for your promises. We thank you for your blessings. And we thank you for your goodness. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.